The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 2, 18 through 3, 6. The word of God speaks to us. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding feast, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One day, this one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? And when he was in need and was hungry, he did, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it, not, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brianna. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, how many of you, along with me, really loved hearing Matt say for the first time, I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline? That was great. That was great. Well, for those of you that uh, I've not yet met yet, my name is Steve, and I'm also one of the pastors here at Frontline. Let's pray, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us um, to, as we dig into these verses from Mark that we just read. Father, we're, we're grateful for your written word. It, it truly is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I pray that you would give us ears to hear today, and that, Father, more than that, you would give us uh, the ability to not just be hearers, but also doers of the word. Lord, we, we give ourselves to you and pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in, um, in June of 1977, some friends invited my wife Sandy and me to go to the movies with them. They had already seen this movie. They said it was really good and that, that I would enjoy it, but I wasn't so sure. I'd, I'd seen posters advertising the movie, and, and um, I, I didn't know if I'd really like it, but I decided to go ahead and go with them. 
And to say that I was blown away by this movie would be an understatement. Um, by today's standards, uh, this movie may not look that impressive, but 45 years ago, no one had seen special effects like the ones that George Lucas developed for that first Star Wars movie. Um, it won seven Academy Awards, and even today, when adjusted for inflation, it's still the second highest grossing movie of all times. And I, I went back and I saw it six more times in the theater, so <laughs> that's not counting the ones I've seen it since then. Um, but it wasn't just the special effects. Um, the plot was a story of redemption. It was good versus evil. The storyline was also jam-packed with good guys and with bad guys. On the, on the good guys' side, we have, um, we have uh, Luke and Leia. We have uh, R2-D2, C-3PO. We have Obi-Wan. Um, even, even Chewbacca and uh, Han Solo make the, the cut for the good guys list. Then on the bad guy side, um, we've got Governor Tarkin. We've got Jabba the Hutt, every stormtrooper in white Kevlar. Uh, and by the way, those guys needed target practice worse than anybody. They couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with their blasters. They, they really couldn't. But then we had the ultimate bad guy, Darth Vader. Now, Darth Vader was the only character to get his own theme music, okay? Yeah, see? Now, when you heard that music, even if he wasn't on the scene, you knew that he was somewhere in the wings getting ready to come out. So people resonate with stories where the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad, even in the old westerns. We liked the good guys with white hats and the, the bad guys with black hats. Now, the trouble is that life is much more complicated than that. See, we make our lists of good and not good people, only to find out that God sees it very differently than that. So here's his assessment of the situation from Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does well, not even one. So in God's good guy column, there's only one person. There's Jesus, the Son of God, who came to earth and lived that life of obedience to the Father that we were called to do, but we never did. On, on the bad guy list, there's all the rest of us, okay? Um, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has gone to his own way, says Isaiah. It's only because of Jesus' sacrifice for us that any of us are made right with God. Well, we need to keep this before us today because as we look at our verses in Mark, what we're going to see is an escalating conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of his day. We can have a knee-jerk reaction to the Pharisees and instantly put them in yet a third column, which is worse than us. See, if we have a good guy column, a bad guy column, we can put them in the column that says worse than us. Like Darth Vader music starts playing whenever a Pharisee comes on the scene. But we just read in Mark 3, 5 that Jesus was angry and grieved at the Pharisees' hardness of heart. But I can show you several places in Scripture where he had the same reaction to his own disciples. And see, grief is a love word. You only grieve over people that you love. 
We know that Jesus loves sinners, and the Pharisees were just their own class of sinners. As we read this, let's cut these religious guys some slack. Some of them, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, like Saul of Tarsus, are soon going to be following Jesus, and they're going to be paying a really high price for doing that. And some of them will harden their hearts, just like we sometimes do. Well, verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that our setting today is in the synagogue at Capernaum. So this is a, a Google Earth image of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and, and it shows us Capernaum up there on the northwest edge. Um, much of what is recorded in the Gospels happen in that area. So Jesus found Peter and Andrew, James and John, mending their nets. They were right there along the shore of Capernaum. Um, he, uh, uh, he took five barley loaves and two fish, and he fed 5,000 men plus women and children over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, he walked out on that water into a storm there and met his disciples in a boat. I like maps because they keep it before me that these are real places with real people in a real time. Capernaum was a real town, still is. Sea of Galilee is a real body of water. The disciples and the Pharisees were real people, and Jesus was really, really there. So let's look at this first question that both John the baptizer's disciples and the Pharisees were asking of Jesus. Why is it that we fast, but your disciples don't? It's interesting the way that Jesus answers this question because he answers it in three parts. Uh, the first, he talks about a wedding feast, then about a new patch on an old garment, and finally about new wine in old wineskins. So his first analogy is to a wedding feast, and he basically says that it's just inappropriate to be fasting during a celebration. In a couple of places in the Psalms, King David says, I humbled my soul with fasting. There's an element of humbling and mourning when you're fasting. Jesus was simply saying that it wasn't the time to weep or to mourn or to fast. He was currently there with them, and now was the time to celebrate. There'd be other times for mourning and for fasting. Then he talked about old things and new things, old garments and old wineskins, new patches and new wine. Now, notice that he doesn't say something really simplistic like new things good, old things bad. All he says is that the new and the old won't mix. If you put an unshrunk patch on an old garment that has already finished doing all of its shrinking, then ultimately that patch will shrink too when it gets laundered and the whole thing will be torn worse than it was in the first place. The same with wine and wineskins. Those wineskins were usually made of goat leather, which initially is flexible and pliable, but over time eventually gets hardened and stiff. That new wine is still fermenting. See, it's bubbling and it's outgassing. It needs a new flexible wineskin in order to be able to flex with it. If you put that new wine in an old, brittle wineskin, the effervescent life that's in the wine will split the skin, and both the wine and the skin will be lost. Now, we're going to come back to that a little bit later, but I'm going to see what happens next in this story. 
verse 23, finds the disciples walking along on the Sabbath and picking grain as they go and eating it. The Pharisees took offense with this and they said, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? We need to hit pause here for a second and see what these guys are saying. The Pharisees are accusing the disciples of violating the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which reads, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, is it just me, or do you also not see anything in those verses that talk about not picking and eating grain on the Sabbath. Just not there. Now, if you read through the Law of Moses, you'll find a total of 613 commandments there. 248 of them are positive, and they say, do this. 365 of them are negative commandments, and they say, don't do this. None of those commandments say anything about picking grain on the Sabbath. But by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had expanded the law to include thousands of lesser commandments, interpretations of the law, and one of those prohibited picking grain on the Sabbath. Trying to live your life by following all the rules gets really complicated. Now, this slide, yeah, this is a, a picture of a hotel lobby in Tel Aviv uh, a few years ago. Those are Jewish people and they're trying to get on the elevator and go up. But the problem is that they can't push the button on the elevator because the current rabbinical interpretation of the law of Moses says that pushing the button is doing work. So they're standing there until someone who isn't trying to follow the law of Moses comes along and pushes the button for them. Well, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus cuts through all these interpretations of the law by telling everyone in verse 27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. And then, just to remind those who were listening that he had the authority to say these things, he says that as the Son of Man, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, David's been pointing out ever since we started this series that every time Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7, and he's basically saying, I'm the foretold Messiah, which further infuriates all the Pharisees. The third movement in our story today concerns Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. A lot of Sabbath stuff here. You, you could start to wonder, does Jesus only do things on the Sabbath? Um, or is it that it's only on the Sabbath that he crosses swords with the Pharisees when he does things on the Sabbath? Um, as we read these verses, watch for the words, they, their, and them. These, these words appear six times in five verses, and they refer to the Pharisees. Picking up in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
So you can watch this conflict with the Pharisees escalate from the seemingly innocent question about fasting to the offense with the disciples picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath, to them watching him closely to seal whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And our verses culminate with chapter 3 and verse 6, with the Pharisees getting together with the Herodians to plot to kill Jesus. Now, Pharisees and Herodians getting together to plot together doesn't mean a lot to us today, but these guys despised each other. They, they really did. The, uh, the Pharisees were religious leaders who saw the Herodians as political sellouts to King Herod and to the Romans. The Herodians saw the Pharisees as a bunch of religious nutjobs. But both groups felt threatened by Jesus and his message, and they wanted to do something about him. Today, it would be a little like a, um, a right-wing militia getting together with left-wing Antifa to plot together to do something because they had a common enemy. So, um, that's our story today. Those are the facts of these verses what I'd like to do now is ask three questions and see if we can better understand what was going on with them and also see some things for our own story. So question number one, who were these Pharisees who had so much trouble with Jesus? Well, in Jesus' time, there were three major religious groups. The first, the Sadducees, were men who saw themselves as protectors of the priestly order in Israel. They didn't associate with the common people. Uh, they strictly wanted to minister before God. Now, we know from Scripture that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or an afterlife, but they were the spiritual elites. Then the second group were the Essenes. The Essenes had declared that society was too far gone for them, so they withdrew to the desert where they could live a separate holy life. Sound familiar? See, today, they probably would have taken their, their chickens, their dogs, and their barbed wire and moved to Logan County, okay? <laughs> now, I can say that because I live in Logan County, and at various times, I've had chickens and dogs, and I currently have a lot of barbed wire. Um, then thirdly, there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees appeared as a movement about 200 years before Jesus' birth, and their original focus had been the interpretation of the law of Moses so that common people could keep the law and be pleasing to God. The Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God, and they also believed that human beings were accountable to do good and to forsake evil. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, and they believed in angels and demons. Doctrinally, we have quite a bit in common with the Pharisees. So question number two, what had happened to them? See, what had happened to them that made them opposed to Jesus? Well, those 200 years since the Pharisee sect had, um, had begun were hard years in Israel. There'd been a, a civil war. The Greeks had come and, and taken over uh, Israel. Then the Romans later occupied their, their territory. And the Pharisees had developed a fortress mentality. It was kind of us versus them out there. 
They saw themselves as the defenders of the faith, that thinly stretched line of righteousness that kept the heathen at the gates from completely overwhelming Israel and, and assimilating it. It's pretty easy in our time for the church to do something really similar and become a church against the city, feeling like that there's too, the world is too far gone, we need to, we need to hide here in our fortress. So to be a, a church against the city rather than a church for the city. Well, the Pharisees had, had focused much of their energy on interpreting the law of Moses, which left everyone with a complex code of conduct that the Pharisees called the tradition of the elders. And these traditions were considered to be on the same level as Scripture. And as the Pharisees continued to interpret the law, interpretation piled on top of interpretation and rule grew upon rule. It became more and more difficult to keep it all. Jesus had this to say about those extra commandments. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So Jesus is saying that what God had been after all along were our hearts. It wasn't just the commandment, but it was what was behind the commandment that mattered. Now, King David saw that. That was why he could take bread from the house of God, like it talked about in Mark chapter 2, and feed it to his men. He understood there was something behind the commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus zeroed in on our hearts when he said, You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother has already murdered him in his heart. Thanks a lot. It was hard enough not to actually kill some people. Now you're, you're making it impossible for me, um, you know, because Jesus went way beyond the actual law. He went behind the law to go after our hearts, to go after our motives, see? Um, and he did that again and again and again. Anyone who understands what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount knows that we're all broken people in need of mercy and forgiveness. We can't keep the law. But the Pharisees had built their world on an ever-increasing list of rules, of do's and don'ts. They had traded the presence of God for this list of rules in their traditions. In Jesus' wine and wineskins analogy in Mark 2, they had become old wineskins. See, they had become incapable of holding new wine, which was bubbling full of life and which was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Well, as you read through the New Testament, you see Jesus roughing up these Pharisees quite a bit. Sometimes he almost baits them. I mean, he 
specifically does things on the Sabbath that, that uh, you know, that baits them. So uh, over 20 times, he says things like scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you know. Um, we talked earlier about he, how Jesus was grieved in his heart over their hardness of heart and that you only grieve over people that you love. So if he loved them so much, why was it that he was so hard on them? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that they were dangerously close to turning away from God's purposes for them altogether. See, like a, like a good father who sees his child right at the edge of a precipice, Jesus was yelling at them to get back. See, it wasn't a time for soft, gentle words. The other reason is it was because the Pharisees ought to have known better. Much had been entrusted to them, like the entire law of Moses, which pointed to Jesus, and now much was being required of them. One of the best-known stories that Jesus told was about a father who had two sons. Younger son demanded his inheritance and then went off to a far country where he, he basically wasted it partying. We know this as a story of the prodigal son, but we need to see who this story was written to and then how it ends. Luke 15, 2 tells us that Jesus was telling this to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So the lesson was primarily for them. As the story winds down, the younger son has come in humility to his father and repented, and he's in a secure place in the father's house. But the story ends with the father out in the field virtually begging his older son to come in and join the party. But the older son is standing there with his arms crossed, throwing a fit because the father had received home the younger son. The Pharisees who were listening to Jesus that day knew that they were the older brother and, and that Jesus was inviting them to come in. So, question number three, could what happened to them happen to us today? Could that happen to us today? When I first became a follower of Jesus, I ran into some 20th century Pharisees. As most of you know, I was apprehended by the Lord during what came to be known as the Jesus movement. And um, the majority of us that were coming to him during that time were totally unchurched. So we really didn't know anything about what was and wasn't acceptable in traditional church culture. In Las Vegas, where I was living, there was a large charismatic church that about 40 of us started attending on Sundays. We knew nothing about the Bible, but we loved the teaching there, and, uh, and, and we, we loved the worship. We loved worshiping with those older people. We could not figure out, for the life of us, why the congregation didn't sit on the front two rows in the sanctuary, kind of like we do here. <laughs> See, so we sat there. <laughs> See, we, we wanted to be under the spout where the glory comes out, you know. We wanted to be right there. Um, it was fine with us that many of the men uh, in the congregation were wearing suits and that, that they weren't as expressive in their worship as we were. Um, but you have to understand that a lot of us were barefoot or in sandals. All the guys had long hair. Uh, the girls were um, either in cutoffs or in long dresses. And um, we had no idea 
about the meetings that were going on behind closed doors to try to decide what to do about the hippie problem. See? But we found out one day when we got to the church and posted on the door was a really long list of dress code. Okay? See, what had happened was the bubbling new wine of the Holy Spirit was about to split that old wineskin, so they poured it out rather than split. I had a pastor challenge me one day that the Holy Spirit would never fill a man with long hair. Now, that was problematic for me because I had long hair and the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, I, I was kind of like the blind man in John chapter 9 who had been healed of his blindness. See, the Pharisees kept asking him the same questions over and over again. But the man finally said, I only know this one thing. I was blind, and now I see. That was pretty much all I knew at that point. But the pastor's traditions had crowded out the possibility that God might do something that would go against his closely held cultural beliefs. Well, a lot has changed since those days. Or has it? See? Uh, my generation blazed the trail on long hair. That, that's not an issue anymore. So it's not unusual for a man with long hair to come in. But what if God does something in our day um, that we really don't see coming? What if God poured out his spirit on the Muslim community in the Oklahoma City area and the new converts excited about Jesus started flooding in to our three services? But most of the women don't feel comfortable not wearing their burqas, so they wear their burqas. And they also don't want to sit with the men. They want to sit on the other side of the room from the men. And the men want to sit on the other side of the room from the ladies. And they also, during uh, confession and assurance, want to come down front and pray on their prayer rugs. See, To say the least, that's a different culture than the one that we have. And I think on that day, we might find out what kind of wineskins we are. Could we stretch to accept the new wine of God's Spirit? Or would we need the new converts to become just like us before we would accept them? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of a Pharisee who came to Jesus with a question. The question was this, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Now, two of the Gospels tell us that the man was testing Jesus to see what he would say. Now, I used to hear that as a bad thing, but I'm not so sure. I think it's okay for us to ask hard questions of the Lord. The proof is in what we do with the answer. See, that sets our trajectory. Jesus answered the Pharisee this way, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. At that point, the Pharisee answers Jesus saying, you're right, teacher, to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. See, a Pharisee had looked behind the law, and he saw that what God was really after was his heart. 
So here's what we need to see for us in this. God is not calling us to rule keeping. He wants our hearts, our affections. If he has our hearts, then the natural outworking of that will be that we love him and we love one another. We'll actually start living lives that on first glance might even look like rule keeping because we don't kill each other. We don't commit adultery with each other. We don't steal from each other. We read our Bibles. We pray like crazy. Those things that God has on his heart. See, But the fact that we're doing that out of our heart makes all the difference. The things that we do need to be the things that please God out of our overflowing heart from him, not because we're checking boxes. If you love someone, you won't need a list of rules on the wall to know what to do. You'll go way beyond what any list of rules would ever have, done, have required of you to do. Out of an overflowing heart, you'll look for ways to demonstrate love for him. Now, what I'm not saying today is that we have to paste a happy face on everything when we're hurting and we're bleeding. King David was in a hard place. He wrote this, I used to go with the crowd to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise. I used to sing and I used to laugh. Now my heart breaks when I think of that. Why are you cast down, my soul? Why do you within me cry? Hope in God. Again, will I praise his name? So it's okay to sometimes struggle. The Bible is full of people that struggled. But what we don't want to do is just give up and go back to rule keeping. We keep fighting to do those things that please him. We keep struggling forward. That way, if we fall down, at least we're pointed in the right direction. You know? Well, maybe today you're realizing that you've become like an old wineskin, set in your preferences, set in your preferences with your own personal version of the tradition of the elders. Maybe you're no longer amazed by the beauty of the Lord and amazed by his love for us. So you don't have to be over 40 to petrify and start hardening up in your responses to the Lord. I've known Pharisees that you know, modern-day Pharisees that were 20 years old. Um, so, um, there's good news for us. There's really good news for us. And there's good news for those first Pharisees, too. Jesus said that he's making all things new. See, all things new, not all new things. There's a difference. He, he can take our heart of stone and he can give us a heart of flesh. He can give us a heart that loves him. He can give us a heart that desires to please him, just like he did with those Pharisees who, who turned and, and called to him. He can stir our affections for him and for the others in your life. Or maybe you're realizing today that you've really never committed to him in the first place. You've really never surrendered. Bible says that it's while we were still enemies of God that he loved us and that he died for us. See, while we were running away from him, you might be thinking that, that you've crossed a line beyond which God can't even bring you back. Well, let me assure you that there is nothing that you have done that puts you outside of the reach 
of his love. The Apostle Paul was once Saul of Tarsus. He was a religious uh, fanatic who killed and imprisoned the people of God before Jesus got a hold of him. See, if God's grace and his love is enough for the Apostle Paul, it's enough for you and me too. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to couple of minutes, take a couple of minutes and just get quiet before God. Uh, he's speaking to many of our hearts, and, and we need to respond to him. So maybe you would say, I don't even know what to say. I don't know how to pray. Jesus told the story of a man who came into the synagogue, and, and he couldn't even lift his head up to pray. And he just stood there and beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. So if that's all that you've got, then, then pray that. So let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes and just spend a couple of minutes in his presence doing business with him. Father, I, I pray for my friends here who are realizing that, um, that rule keeping has been a big deal for them and that, Lord, that they aren't amazed by your presence anymore. Lord, I pray that, that you would transfer that, that heart of flesh and exchange it for the hearts of stone, Lord, that it's so easy for us to slip into. Oh God, let us serve you out of overflowing hearts that see what you've done for us and then respond to that. And Father, I pray for my friends here who have never really responded to you at all and are now feeling stirred and drawn towards you. Father, I pray that you would meet them where they are and that, Lord, as they, as they say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord, that you would extend that mercy to them. And Lord, let them know the love that you have for them. Father, we're, we're all your creation. And we just present ourselves back to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.